Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Those Troublesome Christians. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 19th, 2016. This week, God willing, my wife and I will travel to Italy to walk the 330-mile way of St. Francis. This will be our third pilgrimage. In 2012, we walked the 493-mile way of St. James in northern Spain. And then in 2014, we did the 458-mile pilgrimage across southern France called Le Chemin du Puy. Our version of the Way of St. Francis will begin in Florence, curl around clockwise to Assisi, then continue in a big backward sea to Rome. In Rome, if the line isn't too long and the sun isn't too hot, we hope to walk through the Vatican Doors of Mercy. Perhaps you remember, but back on December the 8th, 2015, Pope Francis declared an extraordinary jubilee year of mercy. At about the same time, he released his new book, which I've reviewed at Journey with Jesus, called The Name of God is Mercy. After a two-hour Mass, Francis began the year of mercy with a symbolic ritual, knocking on the massive bronze doors of the Basilica of St. Peter and then walking through them. Whereas the doors are usually sealed and locked, this jubilee year, the Vatican expects 10 million pilgrims to walk through those same doors. The symbolic significance? I am the door, said Jesus in John 10:7, And so Pope Francis prayed, You are the door through which we come to thee, inexhaustible source of consolation for everyone. To pass through the holy door, said Pope Francis in his homily, means to rediscover the infinite mercy of the Father who welcomes everyone and goes out personally to encounter each of them. And indeed, that's our own pilgrimage prayer. To prepare for our walk, I read the new book by Mary Beard, SPQR, A History of Ancient Rome. The title of the book comes from the shorthand slogan, Senatus Populus Q Romanus, the Senate and People of Rome. This acronym was a sort of civic graffiti plastered all over Rome, on manhole covers and garbage bins, for example, and identified the two components of political power in Roman history, the Senate and the Roman people, and, by extension, the perpetual tension between democracy and dictatorship. SPQR tells how a little town by the Tiber River grew into a global superpower of 50 million people. Western civilization has various roots, observes Beard, but since the Renaissance, many of our most fundamental assumptions about power, citizenship, responsibility, political violence, empire, luxury, and beauty have all been formed and tested in dialogue with the Romans in their writing. As for religion, Rome was intensely polytheistic, 
The range of deities worshipped was proudly elastic. The more gods, the merrier. The basic rule was that as the Roman Empire expanded, so did its pantheon of deities. There was one glaring exception to this historical rule of religion, what Beard calls the troublesome Christians. According to her, there was an irreconcilable clash between early Christianity and ancient Rome. Christians were far worse than the Jews, says Beard. The monotheistic Christians rejected the polytheistic gods that Rome counted on for success. Unlike Judaism, Christianity had no geographic ancestry or historical pedigree. It demanded conversion. Christianity also preached a comprehensive message that threatened to overturn some of the most fundamental Greco-Roman assumptions about the nature of the world and of the people within it. For about a hundred years or so, the emergent Christian movement was invisible to most people in the Roman Empire, but across the decades, Christians earned a reputation as an alternate and anti-social community that existed on the margins of the Roman Republic, the res publica, the public thing. Christians were considered fanatical, seditious, obstinate, defiant. The Roman senator and historian Tacitus, who died in the year 117, called them haters of mankind. They scorned long-held Roman religious traditions. Many of their adherents came from the lower classes and seemed gullible. They refused military service and met for clandestine rites rumored to include cannibalism, ritual murder, and incest. All of which is to say, in the words of one critic, the Christians, quote, did not understand their civic duty, end quote. They undermine Roman society with their indifference to civic affairs. The epistle this week shows how and why. Today we rightly remember Rome for some genuinely democratic ideals, like shared power, limited terms of office, election by popular vote. But there were limits. These privileges were mainly for men. Slaves, women, and the poor had significantly fewer rights. So, in many other ways, Rome was also very much a meritocracy. Now imagine into this mix comes the Apostle Paul, traveling some 10,000 miles around the Roman Empire, preaching a subversive message like the epistle this week, Galatians 3.28, that levels all of our hierarchies. You are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In fact, this verse is repeated verbatim in Colossians chapter 3. Verse 11. The gospel this week illustrates this message of mercy and inclusion. 
A nameless man had been exiled to the margins of human existence. He was filthy naked in public. He couldn't control his speech. He was so violent that people couldn't come near him. All attempts to restrain him had failed. He exhibited the most common form of self-harm even today, self-mutilation. And so the ideology of the day added it all up and said that demons possessed him. My name is Legion, the homeless man screamed, for we are many. Tortured in body, mind, and spirit, he embodied the gamut of human suffering. For a Roman legion consisted of 5,000 soldiers. And so his community did what we still do today. They banished this man to the safe and solitary margins of society. The story is so disturbing that Matthew's condensed version doesn't even mention that Jesus healed the man. Rather, all three synoptic gospels focus on the people's fear of Jesus and their anger at their economic loss. When they saw this derelict man completely healed and the pigs drowned, we read all the people of the region, the Gerasenes, asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. Extending mercy to all without exception, especially to those who need it most, can threaten frighten and anger people. Christian mercy that honors and embraces everyone is the antithesis of the Roman hierarchy of wealthy men that marginalize slaves, women, and the poor. The way of mercy is the opposite of a system of meritocracy, earning your way by privilege, money, status, ethnicity, family, education, and on and on. Mercy for everyone is the message of Jesus. Be merciful, said Jesus, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. Radical equality before a merciful Father is what Paul preached. And so said Pope Francis in his homily back in December, you cannot conceive of a true Christian who is not merciful, just as you cannot conceive of God without mercy. Mercy is the key word of the gospel. We should not be afraid. We should allow ourselves to be embraced by the mercy of God, who waits for us and forgives everything. For books this week, I review a title by Andrew Blauner, who's the editor of this volume. The title, The Good Book, Writers Reflect on Favorite Bible Passages, New York, Simon & Schuster, 2015. This book is 298 pages. The dusk jacket of this book makes a remarkable mistake when it says that the Bible has been translated into more than 500 languages. In fact, according to the United Bible Society, 
There are now almost 3,000 languages in which at least one book of the Bible has been published. Enough languages to include the primary means of communication of over 90% of the world's population. But however you parse the number, the Bible has exerted a global cultural influence like no other book. But for most people in the developed world today, says Adam Gopnik in his introduction to this anthology of 32 writers, the Bible has lost its claim to historical truth or supernatural revelation. The Bible, he says, has a complicated hero in God. How shall we imagine him? There's an inherent interplay between faith and doubt when we read the Bible, says Gopnik. But maybe these sorts of questions say as much about us as they do about the good book? One takeaway from this book is how often it shows that many of our best writers and poets of today take the Bible very seriously, if not literally. As you would expect in such a book, some contributions are better than others. I found it especially fascinating to read the first-person stories of the role that the Bible played in the lives of some of these authors and their families, observant and secular Jews, fervent and lapsed Catholics, Baptists, Christian scientists, and even an angry screed that ends the book. There are reflections here on the Beatitudes, Jonah, Ezekiel's dry bones, Psalm 23, Adam and Eve, Exodus, Noah, so on. Thomas Lynch's personal reflection on the healing of the paralytic, as imagined by a Shamus Haney poem, is worth the price of the book alone. If the Bible has become a tired book for you because of overfamiliarity, if you've lost the creative spark when you engage the good book, many of these stories are like a breath of fresh air. A friend of mine compared it to the similar book by Mary Gordon called Reading Jesus. Once again, Andrew Blauner is the editor. The title of the book, The Good Book, Writers Reflect on Favorite Bible Passages. For movies this week, I review The Danish Girl from 2015. This British biographical drama recreates the story that's told in the 1933 posthumous autobiography by Lily Elby, who lived from 1882 to 1931. The title of that book was called Man into Woman. The film is also based on the 2000 novel by the same title, The Danish Girl, as the movie by David Ebershoff. In real life, Lily Elby was born as Einar, and as an adult was a successful painter who was married to the fellow painter Gerda Gottlieb. Set in 1926 Copenhagen, the movie unfolds with Gerda and Einar deciding that they will shock their party circuit with a bit of cross-dressing. But what starts out as a transvestite role-playing develops into one of the first openly documented gender transitions 
including sexual reassignment surgery. As you might imagine, for almost a hundred years ago, Einar is diagnosed as insane and perverted and undergoes a series of horrible cures. Gerda herself undergoes numerous transitions from disbelief, fear, and anger to love and support. Although it's not said in the movie, in real life their marriage ended. Some people have complained that the movie is only loosely based on the historical facts. Alicia Vikander won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Gerda. Once again, the Danish girl. And for poetry, another Address to the Lord by John Berryman. This is Address to the Lord number eight. It's called A Prayer for the Self. Who am I worthless that you spent such pains and take my pains again? I do not understand, but I believe. Jonquils respond with wit to the teasing breeze. Induct me down my secrets. Stiffen this heart to stand their horrifying cries. Oh, cushion the first, the second shocks. Will to a halt in midair their demons who would be at me. May fade before. Sweet morning on sweet morning. I wake my dreams, my fan mail go astray, and do me little goods I have not thought of, ingenious and beneficial father. Ease in their passing my beloved friends. All others, too, I have cared for in a traveling life. Anyone, anywhere, indeed. Lift up sober truth to a scared self-estimate. Address to the Lord, number eight, by John Berryman. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 19th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.